Aloha. It is uh, just a delight to be with you in uh, Hawaii Kai Church. We're just so excited to get to be here. First of all, I will tell you, we're excited to be anywhere in Hawaii in February. So <laughs> uh, back home in Kentucky, it's gray. It's uh, been mostly cold, though Thursday we had record warm temperatures. So uh, uh, and, and gusty winds, 66 mile an hour winds. So it wasn't our typical winter day, but we were still glad to leave to come here and a joy to get to open the Word of God to you. I want to look with you at a really familiar passage of Scripture, uh, frequently misunderstood, often quoted at, with ill timing, and that's Romans 8.28. You know this verse. And Paul is here making an incredible argument. There's a logic to what is true if indeed Jesus Christ died for us, if that salvation is offered by faith, it's not of works, if in fact God has guaranteed that his intention in the death of Christ for his people is going to be 100% effective, that Jesus accomplished exactly what he set out to do on the cross. And Paul here has, uh, he's talking about that kind of salvation and leading up to verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, he's telling us how th that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. That uh, God the Father has willed this, Jesus Christ has accomplished this, that the Holy Spirit himself is our helper in prayer. He says that we don't, when we don't even know how to pray as we ought, that the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. And God, who knows the mind of the Spirit, always answers the Spirit. He says that, uh, that he knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if the Holy Spirit is always interceding for our behalf, asking the Father to do the very thing that we need to conform us to the image of Christ, then this drives us to an inescapable and logical conclusion that everything that God allows in our lives is to fulfill the purpose of making us like Jesus. Now that is a stupendous claim. Paul sums it up like this. Read with me verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That, that's an incredible claim. Especially when we live in a world filled with pain and sorrow. And right in this room are enough hurts, sorrows, uh, abuses, griefs that we... We could stay here all day sharing those things with each other, the stuff we've been through, how we've been hurt and wounded and bad things that have happened in our lives, some perhaps as a result of our bad choices, some as a result of other people's bad choices, some things not the result of anybody's choice at all, just bad stuff happens in a broken, fallen world. And yet Paul makes this incredible claim 
that God is so great and in control that he can take all of those things and work them together for good in the lives of those whom he loves, who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, that's just hard for us to even imagine. Imagine that uh, you live in France during World War II. The Vichy government is, has been set up by the Nazis, but you're opposed to the Nazis and you want to be a part of the resistance movement and you have to, of course, keep this very, very quiet. You have to work undercover. And uh, you, you put out the word that you'd like to become a, what the, one of what they call the partisans. And there's a meeting arranged in a cafe one night and there, someone that you're told is the leader of the partisan movement meets with you. And he tells you, now listen, you need to know that what will be required of you, if you join our effort, is unquestioning obedience. You won't always understand what is going on. Things may not always make sense to you. But you cannot question any order you're giving. given. You must always Complete it. Any command you're given, you must do it unhesitatingly. And even when things don't make sense. Now, in the ensuing months and even years, you see, you see him in places. Sometimes he's wearing a Nazi uniform. Sometimes you see him arresting other partisans, treating them roughly. You see him often doing things that don't make sense. You, you can't, you're not sure. Sometimes it causes you to question whether or not he really is who he claims he is. But you do your duty, and when the war is over, you learn that those partisans he was arresting, he was, he was taking on the other side of the city and releasing them so that the Nazis didn't get them. And sometimes he had to act rough toward your fellow partisans so that he was not brought under suspicion by the other Nazis. You, you later learned that there was a purpose in everything you saw, even though at the time you made no sense of it whatsoever. But the day came when all your comrades were vindicated, the traitors were exposed, and there was a, a sense made of the events of which you were witness. You see, for the Christian... The great comfort in our suffering is not that we're going to understand it now and make sense of it, but that glory is coming. This is what Paul has given this promise in Romans chapter 8, that he says in, in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. God is working in us this eternal weight of glory that does not compare to these, what he calls elsewhere, light momentary afflictions. Man, they don't feel light right now. Sometimes we hurt, we grieve, but Paul tells us, just hold on, there's coming an eternal weight of glory. These, these afflictions aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So Christ helps us in our suffering by sharing our inherit, his inheritance with us. He tells us in verse 17, he makes us Heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We're adopted sons and daughters. We're recipients of his glory just as we are sometimes of his suffering. And the Spirit helps us by making intercession for us. And the Father 
helps in our lives by working his will, knowing the mind of the Spirit. All of this is so that he might fulfill this one purpose of making us like Jesus. So we can have comfort and confidence in God's providence that he's at work. Now I want to warn you, this is not something that you can just really in the moment, in the moment of grief and suffering, you don't need anybody shouting in your ear, well, God works all things together for good. And conversely, when you see somebody suffering, you probably don't need to say that to them at that moment either. This is a truth that we need to believe before we're in the suffering. This is a truth that we need to really study and learn and trust God so that when we are in the suffering, then we can reflect on it and claim it. This isn't something you can just throw at someone like a platitude as though somehow if you believe this, it makes your pain go away. It does not. Our pain is real. Our sorrow is genuine. But for every possible predicament, there is an corresponding grace of God. For every particular human need, there's a particular supernatural resource that God gives us. This is the promise of Romans 8.28. Now, it has a broader context about our salvation, but today let's just think of its implications as this text alone. I, I think there are five things that we can pull out of, of this verse that will help us as we face our suffering, our sorrow. The first thing is our knowledge of God's providence is certain. Notice the verb he uses, for we know. We know. We don't have to wonder or guess. This is something God declares. No matter how it feels, no matter what someone else says, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how great the injustice, there's something we don't have to wonder about. We know. I have uh, at home a beautiful tapestry that a, a student of mine who was in China, he, he bought this tapestry. It was made by a group of Christian women in China, and they worked on it for months. It is absolutely a stunning tapestry. But if I turned that tapestry backwards and I folded it up into a very tiny little square, it's a, by the way, it's a tapestry of the Last Supper. It's easily recognizable when you look at it. But if I folded it up backwards and I showed you the side where all the threads are rough and hanging out, and I, I just showed you one tiny little square of that big, huge tapestry, you wouldn't make sense of it. I would say, what, what do you see here? You go, I don't know. That it's just a bunch of colors and there are threads hanging out and that makes no sense. As I begin to unfold it, maybe you go, maybe, is that a hand? there's a human face. And as I continue unfolding it, even as you look at the rough side, oh, you can make it out. Now it's taking shape. Oh, I see, those are men. Oh, there's a table. Oh, this is the Last Supper. And the more you see it from a distance, the more it makes sense. But then if I were to turn it around, you saw the finished side. You say, wow, that's beautiful. I think the Christian life is like that. Sometimes we, we live it with a microscope or a magnifying glass. We're looking at it up close right now, and we see the roughness of it. We, we, we don't make out the grand scheme of it. But the 
the Bible promises us that there's coming a day when we're going to see the glory and we're going to know then that every single thread even of the suffering that God wove into our lives was part of him shaping us and forming us to be like Jesus. This isn't something we have to wonder about. We, we know, our knowledge is certain, we know. Secondly, God's providence is comprehensive. He doesn't say some things or most things, but all things. You know, as a pastor, I've been the senior pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfort, Kentucky. By the way, it's the manliest church name in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> Buck Run, I just like it, you know? And I've been there 19 years, and that time I have walked through people with horrible things. I, I mean, I, my first funeral at Buck Run was Christmas Eve, 2003. I preached the funeral of uh, the son, the 24-year-old son of one of my deacons who committed suicide. That was my introduction to Dusty and Mary, I, preaching the funeral of their son. It, I, they, they didn't know me. Here I was trying to soothe and comfort them and not knowing if, if they would even let me in their lives enough. Eventually I would preach the funeral of their other son who died of cancer. I, I, on this year, December 23rd, I preached the funeral of a nine-week-old baby whose father fell asleep with her on his chest and rolled over on her. It just doesn't get more awful than that. And yet what I've learned as a pastor, walking through life with people, through tragedy, through sorrow, through pain that is indescribable, it's those who learn to say, I don't understand it, and this is devastatingly grievous and sorrowful, but I believe that the cross testifies to me that God loves me. And when I can't make sense of whatever else is happening in my life, that bloody cross and the empty tomb bear witness to me that all things are working together for my good because God worked a bloody cross in Jerusalem for my good. You see, Jesus too hung on the cross and cried out, why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? And yet he was faithful through the questions. That's what Paul is telling us. Now, I will tell you, this flies in the face of modern contemporary Christianity. We've reduced Christianity now to just a series of recipes. There's been a big shift. It's like, okay, we're just going to distill the Bible down to those equations uh, and, uh, that help us live life successfully. We want to be healthy and wealthy. Uh, we, we want to manage life well. Our number one goal becomes not to follow Christ, but to get our problems solved. And what we have to do then is find the cause of the problem and find what resources are available to then apply that to our problem. But our bottom line is we just want the problem to go away. Maybe that's not God's purpose. Maybe he's doing something else. Could it be that the, the problem is instead a window into the deepest part of our souls so that we understand the, that there are obstacles in my life that keep me from really knowing God? 
Could it be that today God's agenda is not to solve our problems, that, but to make us intimate with him? And he's using all of these things in our lives to know him intimately, lovingly, longingly, and in complete trust. Well, there's a third thing here. Our circumstances are, here's a word I like, confluent. Confluent. That just means they flow together. You know, you look at the Nile River, it's got sort of a, they talk about the source of the Nile, and you look at the Mississippi River there, it's got headwaters, it's got a source. But man, you look at a map of South America, the Amazon has no single source. It's, it's all over the place. There aren't just two or a dozen or even a hundred rivers and tributaries. There are literally thousands of little rivers and tributaries. They begin up in the Andes Mountains with, with uh, names like the Apurimac, the Judua, uh, the Ucayali, and I mean, they, they flow from all over South America until finally, halfway across the continent, at a city called Manaus, where my dad was a missionary, the, 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 the system from the north called the Rio Negro, the Black River, it comes down, uh, and then it flows into the Solomois, this brown river that is the, the Amazon, and there at Manaus, you, you look at a picture of that, you can see it from space, two rivers that run together, and they don't mix for 40 miles. Black water, brown water flowing side by side, but eventually they can't help it. They go together for another 1,500 miles to empty into the, the Amazon. Man, that's, that's precisely what God does with the, the streams of circumstances and events in our lives. He's bringing them together from all over, from every relationship, every event, uh, everything that happens to you, and he's bringing them together in one mighty river of grace that has carried us through life and will take us right into his presence in glory. All things work together. They're, they're confluent. You are purposed and pre-planned to be like your Savior. You know, a lot of my people at Buck Run work for the Toyota uh, Manufacturing Company. That's the name, the technical name of it. And it's, of course, they make cars. They make the Camry in Georgetown, Kentucky, not far from uh, our church. And I, I, I did a tour there one day. And I don't know what I was thinking, what I expected, but I was shocked when I went in to see that you've got this, you've got these, just these big rolls of steel and they're heated and stamped and they, they make a chassis, and then this chassis comes down the assembly line, and from overhead, here comes like a red body. And then right behind it, there's a blue body. I, that, that shocked me. I thought, like, maybe Tuesday was red car day. And, <laughs> but they, 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 that's not the way it works. There are all these different colors coming down the assembly line, one after another, simultaneously, and then these robotic tracks, these trains from above, they... Like here comes a red door and it swings down and gets attached right to the red car and there's some assembly workers there. They, they do, you know, the, these little robotic arms are doing welds and the assembly workers are uh, putting in the, the nuts and the bolts and it's, it's incredible. And I'm watching this. Things are coming from all over the place and from above and below and beside uh, robots and humans working together and at the end of it, here's this red car. And I, I watched that and I thought, you know, 
If Toyota can figure out how to do that, I'm confident that my Heavenly Father can supply me with exactly what I need when I need it because at the end of this whole thing, I'm going to be with my Savior and I'm going to look like him. And he's preparing me for that. He's shaping me to be like Jesus. He's causing all of these things to come at the right time. And in fact, I love the word Paul uses. When Paul, Paul is talking about his own weakness, remember in 2 Corinthians 12, and he pleads with God to remove that thorn in the flesh. And God says, no, I'm not taking that away from you. He has said to me, my grace will be, oh, that's a great word, sufficient. Sufficient. I'm going to give you not more than you need and not less than you need. I'm going to give you exactly what you need when you need it. Sometimes church members will say to me, Pastor, you know, I'm afraid of dying. And I'm like, well, you're not dying yet. <laughs> when you're dying, God will give you dying grace. But you don't need it today. It will be sufficient because we know that all things work together. There's a fourth truth. God's guarantee is comforting because he says they're going to work together for good. God has this overall purpose. He's making you look like, act like, live like, and love like Jesus. You see verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose is that Jesus have a lot of brothers and sisters who look like him. And that's what he's doing in our lives. He's making us like his son. And so he's bringing these things in our lives that we face things Jesus faced. And we, we find the grace of God that Jesus received, even on Calvary's cross as he suffered. Now, here's the good news. You know, as a follower of, of Jesus, you can't flunk out. But you can have to keep taking the test over and over and over again. So it's better to learn the lesson quickly, isn't it? To learn to trust God in the small things, your ability to cope ultimately depends on your ability to trust. See, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God's not good. And sometimes we look at the hurtful things in our lives and we say, well, God can't be good because he allowed this. He allowed this in my life. Now, look, never be afraid to ask the tough questions of God. But understand that when you ask God why, he's probably never going to answer the question the way you want him to. You know, Job asked God why. Habakkuk asked God why. The psalmist asked God why. And God never answered any of them with an answer that, made, that took away their pain. When I ask God why, why did you allow this? Why did this happen? What I mean is, Lord, if you'll explain this to me so it takes the hurt out. You know, I, when I understand it, then I'll be okay with it. But that's not what God does. When Habakkuk asked God why, God says, Habakkuk, if I told you, you wouldn't be able to take it. And it's me that's raising up the Babylonians. And when Job was asking God why, when God shows up at the end of the book, 
He never tells Job why. He just simply says, where were you when I put the stars in space? And he never answers the psalmist, how long, O Lord? And when Paul asked him about this thorn, God said, yeah, I gave that to you to keep you from being conceited. And because I don't want you to trust in your strength, but to see my, my perfection in your weakness. God's answer is usually going to be some variation of simply this. I'm God, you're not. And we have to rest in that. And you know, when Habakkuk got it, he said, oh, the just shall live by faith. When Job got it, he said, I repent therefore in sackcloth and ashes. And when Paul got it, he said, most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When did Hannah sing in the Old Testament? When she gave her son away. And you're going to find that sometimes the Christian heart sings most when it's trusting in its pain. But there's one last thing I want you to see. The fifth truth here is that this promise is conditional. I don't mean it's grammatically conditional. This isn't a conditional sentence. There's no if and then. But it's not for everybody, is it? You, you see that this is for a special group of people. I can't make the promise to everyone in the world that everything is going to turn out right. I can't make the promise that everything that happens to them will ultimately be for their good. To whom can I make this promise? Those to whom Paul makes the promise. To those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Now these two things are inextricably interwoven. It's impossible for only one of those two things to be true. If you love God, it's because you're called of God. And if you're called of God, it will result in you loving God. These two things go together. Do you love God? Infantile love is always love in order to get something. Uh, our son, one of our sons and daughter-in-law and four of our grandchildren are going to join us here on Wednesday. And uh, Jenny, the baby, she's four years old. Uh, and I will tell you this, she knows how to work her papa. She, just, she is like, the others are just all over me. Papa, we love you. Jenny's real standoffish. I have to bribe her. <laughs> Jenny, come give Papa a hug. She'll go, hmm. I'll say, I got some pears. Papa, Papa. <laughs> you know, frankly, a lot of Christians love God exactly like that. We love him for what he'll do for us, for what we get out of him. But mature love sees the eternal gift of the cross as greater than any temporal sorrow in this world. Mature love sees that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Mature love understands that God's purpose is to make us like Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the only way that we could be redeemed was for Jesus 
to face the suffering and the sorrow of the cross. And because he did, and he trusted him who was able to raise him from the dead, you and I can have salvation. Now, you, you don't have to surrender. One day there was in the land of the bivalves a, an oyster into whose life came real trouble. There intruded into this oyster shell a, a little grain of sand. It wasn't a very large piece, a very tiny quartz, but it was sharp. Its edges were keen, and the oyster was painfully aware of its intruder. Now, there were at least four courses of action that this oyster could take. He could adopt the attitude of the mutineer whose sign is the clenched fist. The oyster might have said with considerable heat and justification, now what have I done to deserve this? Why did this happen to me? If there's a God of justice, if there's a God of love, then why should this be permitted to come to pass? Why should this misfortune have descended upon me and come into my world? Of all the millions of oysters in the eastern seaboard, I mean, why did this happen to me? And there are people you know who speak like that. There are those who grumble and complain. There are those who whine petulantly to heaven in a vain effort to understand why misfortunes come. And it would be understandable if the oyster harbored resentment and bitterness and self-pity. It would be understandable if he passed his time in complaint before God, but we know, and doubtless the oyster knows, that all of his grumblings and all of his complaints couldn't adequately deal with the problem. You know why? Because that grain of sand would still be there. So maybe he could adopt the attitude of the dreamer whose symbol is the closed eye. The oyster might refuse to face the fact and try and live in the warm atmosphere of wishful thinking. He might say, oh, I wish this grain of sand would go away. I wish this grain of sand would go away. Every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. I'm just not going to give in to this. Why? I'm not going to admit there's some grain of sand in my shell. I'm not going to speak it. Don't speak that over me. I'm I'm going to live positively. I'll deny to my mind any entrance of negative thoughts. I'm getting along fine. I'm perfectly all right. Maybe he listened to a podcast that taught him the power of positive self-talk. And he, he might have posted on Facebook, oh, I'm, I'm doing quite all right, and posted pictures of him. Look, I'm great, even with this grain of sand. But there'd be a problem, and that would be that the grain of sand would still be there. So maybe he could adopt the attitude of the Stoic, whose symbol is the stiff upper lip. And this is a noble attitude. We like that. You know, we even like that real pagan poem, Invictus. Uh, we, we sort of thrill at that. It's got that line in it, my head is bloody but unbowed. Man, we love that stuff. It's like, boy, that's, that's tough. And look at that guy. He's just not giving in to the pain uh, he's not giving in to that. We, you know, we love these story, stories of sailors clinging to life rafts, to tossing in oceans, and fathers who, you know, just risk all for their families. The grim determination and magnificence of spirit just thrills us all. The Stoic has always inspired us. 
The oyster might do that. So I'll never give in. I, I refuse to give in. I'm going to fight it out on this line. I'm going to hang on. And we would all applaud and stand in ovation to such an oyster. But it still doesn't adequately deal with the problem because the grain of sand is still there, still cutting, still irritating, still drawing blood. So as a matter of fact, the oyster does none of those things because the oyster is at one and the same time an idealist and a realist. You, you can be both. In fact, I would argue the Christian must be both an idealist and a realist in pain. And the oyster knows with a profound wisdom that God gives even to the humblest of his creatures that nothing is accomplished by rebellion against a hard reality. The oyster knows you can't deny a bleeding, stabbing pain in your side. You can't deny blood. So what does the oyster do? Well, he begins to carefully and patiently, with infinite skill, to deposit on that little tiny piece of quartz a milky substance, which upon its sandy base is spun and wrapped in nature's magic to make of the grain of sand that for which divers are willing to risk their lives, a pearl, a thing of beauty and hidden life, smooth and, and warm, wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. That's what the gospel does. Life only makes sense in view of eternity through the lens of the cross. And it's because of the cross, the fact that we are redeemed people, saved through the suffering, the sorrow, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we can make sense of a fallen, broken world and know that this isn't the end of the story. That God is shaping us, fashioning us to be like his Savior. You cannot receive God's comfort unless you accept the work of God's son. Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? Because God was using his trouble, his pain, his suffering, his blood to save me. That's our only hope. If you are a Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus to save your soul, can you not trust him enough with your pain, your hurts, your life itself to say, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, why would you continue to face life on your own? The only thing worse than suffering and sorrow is when it's meaningless. And for a person who does not know Jesus, for whom there is no eternal weight of glory in the future, then your pain, your suffering, it really is meaningless. But when you come to Christ and surrender your life to him, then you can know that all things are going to work together for your good. Because on the cross, he demonstrated his love for you. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I pray that in this moment, you would just speak to our hearts and cause us to trust in you, 
to rest in your grace, to trust you with the circumstances of our lives. And Father, I pray especially for the person here who's hurting and there's been something in their life that they don't understand. Help them, Lord, to see that the, that the truth is that they may not understand that, especially in this life, but they can understand that you are above it all and you are using everything to weave a tapestry of our lives to make us look like our Savior. But I pray especially for the person who's not here, who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they might see that his suffering had purpose and it was to pay the penalty of their sin and that they might place their faith and trust in him bringing to him all that they are and receiving from him all that he is in repentance and faith for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.